Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello there and welcome to this special season of Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. While we take a break over Christmas and the New Year, we've created these special fortnightly episodes to keep you busy until our magnificent return in February. (laughs) And it will be magnificent. As always, I'm Rob McKnight and I'm joined by the serial killer whisperer herself, Amanda Howard. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Robert. It's been a while. Certainly has. Some people questioned whether we were dead. It's been so long. So, yeah. uh, But as we release this episode, we are hitting 2 million downloads for oh, the podcast. Wow. Congratulations, Amanda. And congratulations. 2 million <laughs> downloads. Can you believe it? I never thought we'd get there, but um, it's so amazing. Like, we only hit a million only a few months ago. So That's right. We're going huge. Yes. Uh, I did think we'd get there. I thought we'd be at five million by now, but that's just <laughs> me. Um, look, let's explain what's going on here. Unlike our usual series, these summer specials will be shorter episodes. We'll investigate those cases that, well, there isn't too much information or detail on that we can break down and examine, but they're cases Amanda wanted to cover anyway. She's been... Dead set keen to do this series. So you will get some interesting facts. There will be some great analysis, but it's not the full production episodes that we usually do. And that's to allow me to go to Disneyland (laughs) (laughs) on my US trip um, and Amanda just to have some time away from me. So (laughs) now what will happen for our Patreon subscribers, we are going to release these on Patreon as they become available. So as I'm mixing on the plane or in the car as we're driving around America and uploading them, Patreon will get them straight away. As soon as they're done, they'll go up. Everyone else on the free podcast subscription service will get them every fortnight. And then in February, Series 7 will come in full gusto and uh, we'll have some great cases. As, as, as we all know, Amanda has like 25 years worth of cases and seasons <laughs> ready to go. And that's something that we talked about with, with the Patreon subscribers the other day. We actually went through my long, massive list and they're going, oh my God, there is like 25 seasons Yeah, they always thought I was joking, but uh, <laughs> we had some group, group chats with our $20 plus patrons the other day. Day. Well, actually, we've done a few weeks in November um, with the patron. We had to catch up on a few, but uh, it was actually quite good because you get into a bit of a rhythm. So they're fantastic people. They're our people, aren't they, Amanda? Oh, they certainly are. And once there's a couple of drinks in Robert, it it, it becomes quite interesting and quite I, funny. But I've got to stop drinking during those things, <laughs> let's be honest. Uh, all right, let's get into our first case. Amanda, we all know you love delving into the past, and this case comes straight from the history books. Arnold Soderman, he was 
was known as the school girl strangler here in Australia, and he's one of the country's worst killers. Can you give us a brief rundown on the case? Yeah, well, Arnold Soderman, he was actually executed in Victoria's country prison in 1936. So we are going back almost 100 years. And, and it was actually for the murders of four schoolgirls between 1930 and 1935. He actually confessed to the four uh, cases to police, but it was after 12 hours of pretty intense interrogation. Um, at the time, police had actually arrested him only for one of the cases, and that was of June Rushman. Um, but then when he was asked to write down what he'd done to have the victim, he, he did that in, in the confession. But then he goes, yeah, but there is not only this one. And he went on to actually go through the entire confession. Well, let's go through his confession and we'll go over the murders. The first confession was to the death of June Rushman, as you said. But this was just the tip of the iceberg. This is his written confession. I'm a labourer and reside with my wife and child at Blair Street, Lee and Gather. On Sunday, December 1, 1935, about 7pm, I left my home on my bicycle. I was dressed in a navy blue shirt, no hat, black boots and soft shirt. I rode to Dales, the newsagents, and then went up to Roughhead Street, nearly to the Butter Factory, and then turned back along Roughhead Street. I met June Rushmore on the footpath walking towards her home near the tennis courts. She said, give us a ride. I knew her and she knew me. I said, where to? She said, anywhere. I said, all right. I got off my bike and she climbed onto the crossbars of my bike. I got on the bike and rode along. I turned into and went along the stock route and said, we'll go down here. She said, anywhere. I rode down the stock route and turned into the road leading to the sanitary depot. About 100 yards from the corner, she said, this is far enough, we'll go back. I got off my bike and said, you can walk home. I made a run towards her and she ran back into the bush. I ran after her and caught her around the neck and she started to scream. I held her by the neck and she went limp all of a sudden. I then took off her bloomers and jammed them into her mouth. I then got her belt from her frock and tied it over her mouth and round the back of her neck. I then tore off a strip of her dress and tied her hands behind her back and left her lying face downwards. I then left her there and got on my bike and went to Pigeons. I cannot say why I did this to June Rushmore. And then I realised that I had done that dreadful act. And I went round to try and show I was away from the scene. So, Amanda, this was the fourth murder. And he's really trying to sound confused by his own actions. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's about trying to um, take away the, the the maximum effect of, of what he's done. You know, he says, you know, I grabbed her by the neck and she went limp. I mean, this is his fourth murder and even an idiot knows what will happen if you grab someone around the neck. So, so for him to sort of say, oh, you know, I don't know why I did this, I don't know what this happened he knew that by by grabbing this small child around the throat that she was going to die and so it, he's about trying to put himself outside the crime um we, we hear this again and again with these confessions that they're so matter of fact they don't go into you know um she was screaming and i was panting and you know i did this and i did this and then she did this and i did it's it's about the simple one step act of 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 the entire killing that that's going on you know and he's almost outside of himself doing this because he's saying you know oh, i was riding my bike and we were chatting and then all of a sudden this happened as if something sort of forced him him to do this you know he's outside looking in he's it's interesting to... you say that because reading that out i got that there was so much detail he knew what he was wearing he knew what streets he traveled down but the murder in that statement 
went like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I grabbed her and she and she went limp. Yeah. You know, it's it's about like when I was reading that out, I actually thought for a moment, oh, was was she just playing limp? But no, some time had passed. He'd been choking her, but it doesn't come across like that in the statement. He's really minimized that as you were saying before mm-hmm. and tried to make it sound like well, within a moment she was limp, but obviously some time would pass because choking is not a fast method, is it? No, no, and and I've actually asked several killers about this shockingly, and they say it's it's a it takes a lot of strength and takes a lot of time. It can take four to eight minutes for someone to go limp mm. because they do fight, they do struggle, and she would. But have when you hear that confession, yeah, that's not how that comes across. No, and and there is no descriptive responses. You know, it's about these very minimal facts. That that he can get across saying, I was there, basically. So where did the killing start? Well, actually, we have to go back several years to 1930. Uh, the first victim was... So that's Mina. about five years? Yeah, so it, it, it was five years uh, before June's death. And this first victim was actually Mina Griffiths. Now, she was a 12-year-old, and she'd actually been playing mm. in a park. It, it was November 9th, on 1930, when Soderman actually come across the group. And he's just sort of watching them wondering what he was going to do. This is his first killing, as we said. And he's just he he decides that he wants this one girl out of this whole group. So to get her away from the group, he actually sends most of them to a local store to get ice creams, which is what you did back then. It's summer, you know, beautiful weather. But he says to Mina to stay with him because he was going to send her on another job. And so by the time the other kids come back with an ice cream for her, she's gone and so is he. Wow, this is his written confession. I went to Mina Griffiths and said, will you go a message for me? She said, yes. I said, come on then. I said, where would you like to go? She said, anywhere for a ride. She said, I'm hungry, buy me something. I gave her money and she went into a shop and bought some fish and chips. We then got on a bus and went to Ormond. While we were walking along the road, I saw a vacant brick house. I said to Mina Griffiths, come in here. I found the back door open. We went inside. And as soon as we did, I grabbed her by the throat and held her, and she went limp. I then dragged her into the bathroom and let her throat go. She fell to the floor. I then tore a portion of her clothing from the body and stuffed it in her mouth. I tore off another piece and tied it round her mouth and round the back of her neck. I tore off another piece of her clothing and tied her hands behind her back, and with another piece I tied her legs. I walked out of the house, locked the back door and front door, and then went home. Amanda, this sounds very similar to the confession of the final murder. Yes, it does. But, you know, we see that he's tied her up. We see that she's been sort of collapsed onto the floor. But what he doesn't mention is that he has actually raped her during this attack. No, there's an inference there, but it's not overtly said. No, it's not. And her body wasn't actually found for for two days and there was a massive search for her. Um, But she wouldn't actually be linked to Soderman until he actually confesses. And it's just so... Now, why is this? Because he was the last person seen with her. How did no one put that piece of the puzzle together? Because he was just this standard person. He was very average. And no one... Like, the kids that saw her with him couldn't sort of describe him well enough. And, you know, it's... Oh, so he wasn't known to them, but no. he's given them money to go and get ice creams. It was to separate her mm. from her friends, yeah. So, and but, you know, like, this wasn't 
the first attack he'd done, he'd actually attacked two two children prior to this, but they had survived because, according to him, he'd come to his senses and he'd actually let them go. So, you know, he he was actually captured for the attack on a boy, but he was let go with, with a warning. And because this was a girl this time, they sort of didn't link two and two together. So he hmm. actually was was free and another man was actually arrested and charged with Mina's death but he was able to provide um a pretty solid alibi so the second murder that of 16 year old Adeline Hazel Wilson occurred in January 1931 this is Soderman's confession on January 10 1931 I left home after tea and had a drink of beer with a neighbor later I met Hazel Wilson in the street she smiled at me I said good night and she stopped and asked me for a cigarette. We got into conversation, and then she invited me to walk home with her. We were talking together near her home and started pulling each other about and skylarking. I then grabbed her by the throat, and she dropped in my arms. She went limp almost immediately. I then let her throat go, and she fell to the ground. I then caught her under the arms and dragged her along the street. Passing her home, I dragged her to a vacant allotment on the other side of the road. I took off her stockings and stuffed one in her mouth. I tied the other stocking round her neck. I tore a piece of her petticoat and tied it across her mouth and around the back of her neck. I took her bloomers off and tied them around her ankles. I took her leather belt off and tied her hands behind her back with it. I also tore another piece of her underskirt and tied her hands together. I then walked home. Amanda, identical situation, but talk to me. The tying. She's dead. Why is he tying her up why is he putting material in her mouth um because she's likely not dead at but close to it so she would be right. unconscious and he doesn't want her to fight so he has learned that these these children and this is a 16 year old this time is actually going to try and attack back and so the extra precautions gotcha. he takes is to make sure that if she comes to her senses and um, whilst he's raping her that um you know she is going to fight so this is a way to make sure that he has the upper hand the entire time you know but w- w- we would actually call this these days a signature the way he tied them you know the the stockings around the face the mm. way he tore the clothing up rather than bringing items with him it's just part of that and and it's the it's part of his process that excites him and and he knows it by tearing off the girl's clothing rather than removing them it's part of that excitement it's it proves that though he's he's telling us this quite calmly and and very factual we know that there's a lot of um sexual emotion going on that he's not wanting to say yes there's a lot he's leaving out of these confessions Well, after two victims in three months, he went very quiet. And after the break, we'll find out why and what happened next. Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. We'll be right back. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This 
interviews are a little different. Let's go for it. Let's cut some throats. And they are very, <laughs> very honest. And I do believe that that was the real beginning of us breaking up. It's a celebration of media with tall tales you have to hear to believe. Simon used to fly up into a rage. Join media executive Rob McKnight for a brand new podcast where you never know what will be revealed next. McKnight Tonight, part of the TV Black Box podcast feed. Fun inside, fun interviews from a watchdog producer with nothing to lose. Night tonight. Oh, Amanda, some new McKnight Tonight's uh, coming into your podcast feed. Uh, Julia Morris, who is known in the UK, she did a lot of stand-up there. She was actually in Kathy Griffin's My Life on the D-List. Oh, wow. So she's an Australian. Kathy Griffin went to the UK, did this special on the UK, and got an expert on British culture and had the Aussie do it. <laughs> so Julia <laughs> Morris was the one in the episode. So yeah, I, I asked her about that and how the hell that came about. And she also tells a fascinating story about um, a very embarrassing, embarrassing incident where basically the whole cast and crew of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, the Australian version, saw her poo. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> the oh most embarrassing thing. And... Also for our UK viewers, our listeners and people around the uh, world who like Prisoner Cell Block H, I am interviewing Maggie Kirkpatrick this week and that interview will be going up soon. She played the freak, of course, in Prisoner. And uh, i got to tell you, just <laughs> we had a bit of a chat the other day on the phone and if it's half as good as that phone call was. <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> I haven't, at the time we're recording this, I haven't done the interview yet, but my God, she's a cracker and she seems up for anything. So we'll see how that one goes. But yeah, a few few interesting interviews coming. Mm, sounds good. Indeed. Well, that's enough of the plugging of my other podcast. <laughs> Let's get back to the topic at hand. And we're talking about Arnold Soderman. And we've looked at some of his victims already. And what we were talking about is within the space of three months, he had two victims, but then he went quiet, Amanda. What happened? Um, yeah, so he has killed these two victims in, in quick succession. And then there's a break of almost four years until January 1935. And it's it's quite shocking to have such a break. I mean, we're, we're learning more and more about this sort of thing now, especially from killers like um, Dennis Rader. But... Um, what we find is that they often have a stability in in their home life. So a new partner, a baby, sometimes they're incarcerated for other crimes that obviously prevents them from killing. Um, but he actually had a close call with police as well. So he had a few things going on that actually allowed him to sort of say, hang on a sec, I have to stop this. So he, you know, school schoolgirls were safe for a while, but it was then in 1935 that he attacked again. Well, this is his confession to the murder of 12-year-old Ethel Belshaw. On January 1, 1935, I was residing at Leangatha. On that day, I went to Inverloch. I'd formerly met the Belshaws and knew Ethel Belshaw. I spoke to her on the beach and then went up the street and had two or three glasses of beer. On the way back, I met Ethel Belshaw. She said, Hello, where are you goings? I said, For a walk. She said, I am coming. I said, Oh, no, you are not coming. She said, Yes, I am. 
We both walked together towards the pier and then up to the track towards the scrub. We walked up to the track in the scrub about 200 yards. She poked her hand into my ribs and I started tickling her in the ribs. She kept poking me in the ribs. I then grabbed her by the neck and held her. She went limp. I dragged her off the track and laid her down. I looked at her and thought she was dead. I took her shoes off, then took her stocking off and stuffed it in her mouth. I then took off another stocking and tied it around her mouth and the back of her neck. I then turned her body over on her stomach. I pulled her bloomers off and tied her feet together with her bloomers near her ankles. I also tied her hands behind her back with the belt she was wearing round her frock. I then went back to the beach and I joined our party. So Amanda, straight away, the police must have known instantly the killer had returned. Well, absolutely, because Ethel's body looked exactly the same signature as the other two victims. So though the police investigation had continued this entire time, um, there was this gap that they had hoped that he died or something like that. But there he is, the signature is back again. He, 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 he strangles these young girls. He then ties them up with pieces of their own clothing. And so they knew that the pattern was back. And so they knew they had had the same killer, you know, but... Like the others, uh, Ethel had actually fought against him. But, you know, she was no match. But shockingly enough, um, even though Soderman was seen with her and was known to her family, another man was actually arrested for oh. the crime. So Gordon Knights was arrested because his younger sister was friends with Ethel and many witnesses believed that he was the man that they had seen with her oh, the day no. that she died. So thankfully... Um, his his charges were later dismissed, but really he had actually even confessed to the crime because the police had sort of, you know, done the heavy on him. But Oh, you know, he'd gotten to that point where he was just under such yeah, interrogation exactly. he confessed. But the thing that got him off is that he couldn't he had no idea about the other two cases. So, you know, though he was there and he was this instant suspect, he couldn't be because he didn't know about the two earlier victims. It's interesting when you hear the confessions, how he writes, how how Soderman writes about how he gets the girls to come with him. In each case, it's not like he ever asked them to come. It's they wanted to come. They wanted to walk with him. These strange women, women he doesn't even know, suddenly want to be his best friend after a little chat. They want to walk with him. They trust him. Uh, But do do they? Well, this is my question. What's the reality, do you think? Um, with this last victim, especially Ethel, I think because he was there with the family and, and was known and he to was them, known to her, so that yeah, does make so, a difference. So I think he probably didn't want to kill her and him saying to her, no, you're not coming with me while I go for a walk, was him probably trying to save her, her I life. I wondered that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, but then we have that these girls went with him and that they were being promiscuous towards him. That's what he's telling us has happened, that he has taken something, he's, he's taken his pedophilic nature to want to have sex with these young girls and believing that that's what they're doing to him to entice him to do this. It's not. So they had and it coming. Yes, yes. Is what he's trying yes, to that, say. That, that they've led him on and yeah. that he's he's taken the bait and it's ended up with a brutal rape and killing. But it's not usually the fact. It's usually... Children are friendly to adults because they're they're, they're told to be, you know, that we're we're supposed to respect these people and they don't expect they're going to be killed. 
So then on December 1, 1935, he murdered June Rushmore and he was captured shortly afterwards. Now, Amanda, there was a few interesting eyewitnesses. This is what one man said. He looked like a sleepwalker. His eyes seemed to be fixed. I knew him to speak to, but he didn't seem to recognise me. Amanda, we've heard people say this before about killers. I think from memory, a witness claimed Jeffrey Dahmer's appearance changed. Yeah, and and this is something that we've heard a few times and it could be more prevalent because we don't know because victims don't don't, don't survive these sorts of, of killers that there could in fact be something almost biological that happens when they get to have this point of, of this compulsion to kill and this compulsion takes over. Um, he seems to be consumed by it by the end and, you know, it seems to be quite stark quite a stark contrast to what Soderman says. Like, he, he he tells us this story that's very matter-of-fact, and yet these people who saw him with these girls are saying that he looked like a sleepwalker and he looked like a zombie, mm. and it's it's quite terrifying that they're wanting to make him look like a killer. They want to say that he's demonised and, mm. you know, he's a horrible person. But, you know, we don't want killers to look normal, but, you know, we, we, we've heard this story a few times now of these people changing appearance. And um, it is quite a fascinating point that seems to just prop up, not often, but it is there. Well, let's take a look at Soderman's life. Does anything point to a killer in the making? Well, uh, Soderman, he was, he was the son of a German engineer and he apparently grew up in a... a family of extreme violence like his his father beat both him and and his mum often and at 13 he actually fled the family home and headed off to the coal mines and you know worked you know the 20 hour days that coal miners do um his first criminal act was at the age of 17 where he started to forge checks he went to reform school for that which is what they did but it did nothing except teach him more ways to to attack people so he started to rob people after that, he was sentenced to three years hard labour um, after being caught and he escaped and then um, was given another year on, on his sentence. Right. But in 1926, he um, met a woman and they married and they had a child together. Um, and his wife claimed that he was never violent, and but he did suffer from um, quite horrific and acute alcoholism. So uh, this seemed to be the turning point in his, his life, that his drinking become worse. It started to um, affect his mental health and he, he suffered severe depression. And actually later during the, the trial, um, experts actually claimed that he suffered from poor Im- impulse control when he was drunk. And as we know, when he's talking about most of these cases, he said, I had a couple of beers beforehand. Mm. So there's this theory that maybe that there is a lack of responsibility because he he was drunk, but, you know, it could be a lot more involved. But even, even though they were trying to claim diminished responsibility, he was still found guilty of murder. Yeah, he was because the, the the jury knew that he knew right from wrong, and and that's what they need. It's it's not about um, mental health as as we see it today. It's like what you did, you you, you knew knew was the wrong thing to do. And actually, with the very first confession that we did of his, he actually said, "I knew what I'd done was wrong," and so instantly that that that's his guilt. So mm. he was actually sentenced to to hang for the four deaths. And then after his execution on June 1, 1936, the pathologist found something very interesting. 
Yeah, well, um, according to the reports, uh, Soderman's alcoholism had actually caused chronic leptomeningitis, which is basically an inflammation of the thin lining that covers the brain. Um, and symptoms for this include fatigue, headache, cranial um, pulses, so um, things going wrong inside, and numbness and weakness. And it can actually cause learning and behavioural changes. So could that have created a killer? Um, well, I've actually asked a few people about this, and, and as as a lot of people know, I suffer severe migraine, so I asked my neurologist <laughs> about this, and um, and he actually said, no, it doesn't cause someone to become a killer, but it can create changes in inhibition. So um, coupling that also with his alcoholism, it's more likely that um, he was he, he had this desire of pedophilic behavior and so adding this with this um leptomeningitis adding it to his alcoholism adding it to his his depression and it basically created that perfect storm wow that's really interesting i feel like i'm lucky to have survived our friendship (laughs) there's days there's days Well, Amanda, that brings us to the end of our very first episode of the Summer Series. That was fascinating, and uh, I'm really glad we did that case. Thank you very much for bringing it to our attention. Thank you. It's Yeah, it's, it's these sorts of cases that we have no um, recorded confessions that I really wanted to do as a special series. So mm. looking at those that we have written confessions for... Uh, is just something that we needed to do and this was a great first episode. And this is a great way to do it. Uh, We will be back in a fortnight's time for those on the free podcast. Patreon will get it as soon as it's made available and we will see you next time on Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. If you'd like to subscribe to Patreon, go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. 